Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. I was going to say welcome the morning after. You know, maybe it was always going to end this way. This is what I wrote in my newsletter. But still, what came, what happened yesterday was a shock. Now, those of you that listen to this podcast or read my emails know that I've been raising this question of violence and how things are going to get out of hand almost on a daily basis. In fact, there, there have been moments when I thought maybe I'm pushing it a little bit too far. Maybe I'm being alarmist. But, um, you know, you spend any time listening to Trumpist media, reading what's going on, the way people were being whipped up, this alternative reality, it was hard not to imagine that something awful was going to happen. And so that's why I kept raising it. But I will tell you, I'll be honest with you, when it actually happened yesterday, when you had, uh, when you saw this, this moment where the U.S. Capitol was attacked, Guns drawn in the House chamber, people dying, congressmen and senators having to go into hiding, the formal counting of the Electoral College delayed, the president's allies, you know, both in the mob and, and on the floor of Congress trying to overturn an election. It was still this is a stunning moment. This is shocking. I mean, in the end, it failed. This putsch failed. And uh, sometime in the middle of the night, I wish I'd been able to watch it live. Um, Mike Pence gaveled down and declared that Joe, Joe Biden is the next president of the United States. So that's good. Uh, but on the other hand, I, I, I think we're still sorting out the fallout and the damage of this. Uh, I don't think that it's over now. Um, and, and I think that the debates that we're having right now, I think are rather extraordinary. I mean, uh, historians, if you come back and you listen to this, to this, uh, this podcast, we wake up this morning with members of the administration, uh, resigning or considering resigning. Um, actual, apparently serious talk about invoking the 25th Amendment, um, multiple calls from folks like the Washington Post editorial board for President Trump to be impeached and removed with just 13 days left in his term of office. So let's just dive into all of this. And we are joined again by our good friend, Adam White, resident scholar at AEI and all around just legal deep thinker. So Adam, really, what the hell? <laughs> Hello, Charlie. What a day. Yeah. I mean, where do you want to start? I mean, there, there's just so many, there's so many, you know, things to go to. I, I, I retweeted somebody who said, think about the moment we're in right now, that the president of the United States is deemed to be too, um, too reckless and dangerous to be on Twitter or Facebook, but he still has the nuclear codes for two weeks. Yeah. So, well, you, you know, I <laughs> I want to say, first of all, based on your intro, I really do admire the Bulwark's new tagline. Uh, what did you think was going to happen? Yeah. Uh, when you guys changed that yesterday, I thought, well, of course, that's right. But then I, I tried to think back, what did we think was going to happen? Um, and I can't say I predicted this. I certainly didn't. This is horrific, but it's, it's ending, I, I suppose, about as badly as anybody figured it might. Um, I, I, I just want to say, I think yesterday, aside from the, the horrific, you know, insurrection, and I'm sure we'll talk about that, um, just the scene in the, ele the Electoral College counting votes, I mean, what a breakdown of constitutional self-governance, um, the misuse of that process, really the, I don't know if it, either it was cynical, cynically misused in Congress or, or in good faith misused in Congress, either way, it just, the process of of, of county electoral votes showed a profound misunderstanding of constitutional self-governance by uh, sort of sadly, you know, senators who sort of profess the, 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 the loudest to believe in the Constitution. Yeah, people like, uh, t you know, Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley. Well, I, I don't want to get too deep. I'm going to get to Congress in just a moment. Sure. But, you know, let's let's not move past the the main moment, the, the, un <laughs> how many times have we used the word unprecedented, uh, but it mm -hmm. genuinely was, there's no historical parallels to the president of the United States inciting what happened yesterday. And I think people need to understand that, that, that what happened yesterday was what Donald Trump wanted to happen. I didn't want people to die necessarily, but he wanted, um, the mob to stop the counting of the vote. He tried everything else. He went to court and he failed. He got the Department of Justice to investigate, try to gin up fraud. It failed, right? He tried to get legislatures to overturn. It failed. He tried to bully election officials into overturning the election. That failed. His last card was Mike Pence, his loyal, sycophantic, robotic, you know, vice president. And Mike Pence told him, no, I'm not doing it. Um, that's a rather extraordinary moment. 
um, really breaking with the president at the most important moment. And at that point, Donald Trump had only one card, which was this putsch, this coup d'etat, this send the mob in to stop Congress from being able to do its mandated constitutional duty. And so that's part of this breathtaking moment that what happened was what Donald Trump wanted to happen. He wanted to stop the count. He wanted it to delay it. And for a while, he succeeded. This is the president of the United States. There's nothing remotely historical uh, parallel in this country. Now, in other countries, there are. But I mean, this is that's a breathtaking. That was a breathtaking. Even for those of us who spent the last four years saying, warning about Donald Trump, saying what a bad idea it is to put a demagogue and a narcissist and a chronic liar in that yeah. position. But I mean, th this this confirmed the worst, worst fears about what Donald Trump was capable of. And watching the president's defenders both yesterday and, and surely today point to his kind of perfunctory statements about peacefulness. At, you know, at one point, I think he said, stay peaceful as if there wasn't already a riot on our hands. Um, they're going to point to that. It's it's like a I thought of it yesterday. It's like a bank robber walking into a bank and holding up a gun and pointing it at the teller and saying, I'm not robbing you. Um, just, but continuing to just point the gun until the bank rob until oh. the teller hands over all the money. The, we all know the robber was robbing the place. And I think it's pretty pathetic that some people would suggest that that what happened yesterday wasn't actually what happened, which is, as you said, the president riling up a mob and pointing them like a loaded weapon directly at the Capitol building and then sitting back and watching the the proceedings on Fox News or whatever he was watching. Well, right. I mean, there's a couple of things there that rather extraordinary. You know, during the rally, he says, I will be with you, you know, implying that he was going to be marching on the Capitol with them. And of course, he didn't. He right. incited them and then he bailed and, you know, hidden his office and, 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 and tweeted or whatever. Um, but you know, one of the big questions that we're going to have, and, and maybe it's not the most important in terms of the Constitution, but I think it's a it's a fundamentally important question is, you know, how did this happen? Um, what was the breakdown in security that allowed the Congress of the United States to be disrupted? The first time uh, the Congress, you know, the Capitol being breached since the War of 1812 how did this happen? Why were we not prepared for this? What was the Capitol? What was the role of the Capitol Police? And did Donald Trump actually refuse a request to mobilize support for them, the National Guard? I mean, there's many things that he did yesterday that I think are impeachable. Um, but that alone would be one if, in fact, knowing that the Congress of the United States was under siege, that he refused to provide them help. Yeah, this was a, a, a giant case study for terrorists or anybody else that wants to do harm to the American people. And there needs to be a full congressional investigation into this. I think anybody who spent any time in Washington, D.C. knows that if you just look around long enough, you'll see about five, ten different kinds of police forces walking around. There's federal police. There's all sorts of U.S. Marshals and Park Police and other groups. Um, there's the the D.C. Police, the local police, the, the Capitol Police. And I suppose that works some of the time, but at a moment like yesterday, when what you need is a really centralized, planned out and well-organized defense, because we all knew, I mean, Trump was saying for days that January 6th was going to be a, a, a big right. day. We all should have, the, the government should have been ready and on a footing. And even if Donald Trump wasn't going to put police in the way of his own mob, uh, at least Congress and, and the Washington, D.C. police could have taken proactive steps. And so I think there needs to be a real investigation, first beginning with sort of capital security, but then radiating outward at what is the police force in Washington and how do we protect against something like this again before it happens again? Because now exactly. it's, this is proof of concept. It's these, these This mob has shown that this works. And now the question is, how will other groups, either these groups or other groups, refine the concept and learn from this nightmare? Well, that's right. And and you're, you're seeing similar protests at state capitals around the country. And and, yeah. and I know that many of the listeners of this program will think that, that you know, who are horrified by all of this will assume that that, that everybody else is horrified. And I, I got to tell you, you have to understand that there's a substantial por a portion of the Trumpian base that was uh, excited by this, that, that actually yeah. does think that this is somehow the storming of the Bastille, if they actually knew any French history or the you know, Boston Tea Party, you know, that 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 they are energized by this. And so in the fever swamps, this day will be will be marked differently. And that's why 
Trump's video and his tweet where he praised the folks or provided justification for what they did, that's going to feed this fire. And so I I have to tell you that I, I think that, that that in in some ways this was kind of like the last spasm, you know, the end. But it was also a prologue for for a lot of things that are going to be happening in the future, especially if these folks really do believe that they are freedom fighters uh, and that they need to take back the governor, the government from people who have stolen it. Because then we've gone from protests to riots to full out insurrection. And quite frankly, that's a, you know one small step to civil war. And, 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 and I'm sorry, I don't feel that I'm overstating it right now. And let's not forget, actually, this is the real original version of this was in Michigan in yes, May. Right. Right. What that President Trump was encouraging, right? He had the 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 tweet, something along the lines of the the government the governor of Michigan should should give a little, right? These are yep. good people. They're angry. They want their lives back. It, that's that is, I think, the real roots of this. That we saw President Trump do this in Michigan. And I think that yesterday is just the the sort of the bigger federal version of the Michigan uh, militia uprisings that President Trump applauded then. No, uh, it, it it was. Well, let's talk about the the the, the congressional vote. I mean, there were, it's interesting how how the Senate was so different from the House. Um, the Senate really did appear to be shaken by what happened, and one after another, senators said, "Okay, we're going to back off from this." Even you know Kelly Loeffler and even my you know Ron John, um, who had been you know uh, waving the, the 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 bloody shirt, he ended up not voting against either Arizona or Pennsylvania. So the air went out of the Senate uh, challenge to the Electoral College. In fact, the votes were were overwhelming. I mean, 93 to 6 on Arizona, 92 to 7 on, on Pennsylvania. So, you know, from the point of view of history, you look back on that, that, that was a huge drubbing. That was a huge bipartisan repudiation of everything that you know, the Donald Trump had been saying, but the House was a very different situation. You had 138 members of the House, a majority of Republicans in the House voting to throw out the votes of Pennsylvania. And I have to tell you, Adam, um, about a week or so ago, I was talking with Congressman Adam Kinziger, Republican from Illinois, and he said uh, on the podcast here, uh, predicted that there would be I, I was asking, will there be a few dozen people who object? You know, well, how many will it be? And he said, it could be 100. And I was like a gut punch, but it turned out to be much worse than that. It turned out to be 138. So you you do have, you know, kind of, you know, a tale of two two houses here. You have the senators breaking rather dramatically in many ways uh, with Trump, but the House of Representatives under Kevin McCarthy, they're just totally all in. I mean, and they've they've embraced the conspiracy theories and the bullshit and they did that they took the vote after all of the mayhem in the Capitol, which is sort of, you know, doubles up on the on how stunning it is. Yeah, it's really unthinkable. The vote in the house is a I think a, a dangerous portent for things to come and what we might see in terms of Republicans attitude towards the Biden administration before it even gets off the ground. I, re- I just I have to say, as somebody I can't say I'm a scholar of the Electoral College. I don't spend a lot of time thinking about it. I've taught a, cl- a short sort of reading group on it over the last few months before the election for AEI and, and learned a lot. But one thing I just wish I I would love to hear some of these members of Congress just explain to me what they really think Congress's job is here. I mean, I understand that maybe there's some hypothetical where Congress does need to investigate if there is sort of clear evidence that there was shenanigans in a state. Um, I, I, I can accept that sort of far-fetched possibility, but for something here where it's pretty clear that there was no fraud, and even if there's questions about what what a state legislature did versus a governor versus courts, um, to say that Congress should act sort of in a, this very brief period of after the votes come from the states and, and before the inauguration should act as this tribunal that's, you know, investigating all of these things. It just makes absolutely no sense. Um, I think it shows, I mean, I, this, I mean, you and I have talked about this in previous episodes of the podcast. You know, I think the greatest constitutional crisis we face in our time is just the utter lack of self-restraint by anybody in government. They like wielding power. They, they don't really understand duty or restraint or, or any kind of civic virtue. 
And what we saw throughout this process is exactly that. These members of Congress acting as though they have these immense powers, but without any real duty to just seeing the smooth ordering, well, you know, smoothly ordered functioning of government. They act like they can just blow things up without actually taking stock of what kind of implicit restraints might be on their office. And yeah. I think it's extremely depressing. It, 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 it was a sad day. I mean, it, it was, um, you know, sometimes people write me and say, you know, Charlie, you seem very calm given everything that's going on. And I have to tell you that that's, that's, that was a veneer yesterday to the extent that <laughs> there wasn't a veneer because, uh, I spent most of yesterday in sort of a, a state of incandescent rage, but as the day wore on, it was just sad. It was just sad watching, you know, how, you know, how profound this, this sort of loss of tradition, respect, all of that, you know, and watching these guys go in there and, you know, thinking, you know, that they're somehow reenacting the American Revolution. It was it was it was profoundly depressing. And I do think that, you know, that, that, that we keep talking about. You know, there's, you know, people who say, well, you know, this won't work, so we shouldn't worry about it, uh, you know, get a grip and all of this sort of thing. Uh, but but the long term damage that we're seeing is is profound. And it, we, we've moved from the unthinkable to the thinkable at a, at a much faster rate. So let me ask you a question, Adam, that we asked on our live stream. We did a special bulwark, <clears throat> excuse me. Bulwark Plus emergency live stream for, for January 6th. And the, the first question that uh, Jonathan last asked us all was, does this change anything? Do you think, what do you think? Does, does what happened yesterday change anything? I think it does. Um, it, it changes a few things. And maybe the first and most important one, I think, is, is the stance that the Biden administration should have towards what happened during the Trump years. Um, I've, I've long believed that that the, one of the most important things President Biden could do is to close the book on what happened, not through recriminations and investigations, but by sort of declaring Trump guilty and then pardoning him. Um, I wrote a piece for the Bulwark when the Bulwark was still pretty new called There Will Be Blood. And, and I warned yeah, about the yeah. never-ending cycle of recriminations. What happened yesterday was on such a profoundly different scale in terms of of what President Trump did, the kind of crowd he incited, and the actual damage that it did to the to the the literal symbol and home of American constitutional governments, the, the Capitol, that it, that the Biden administration needs to do something. I don't. I've, I'm still wary of the idea of of prosecuting a former president. I think that's very 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 dangerous. But I do think that the Biden administration does need to investigate in conjunction with Congress, what happened. And maybe the best thing that could happen is for Congress to lead the investigation and the Biden administration to support it as best as it can, because then at least we're talking about a, a constitutional and policy discussion less than one of criminal, you know, criminal sanctions. But we really need to get to the bottom of, of what happened and why. And and so I, I I guess what's changed then is to answer your question is is I'm more open to more investigations based on what happened now. Yeah, I'm 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 a bit more hawkish than you are on all of this, just because yeah. uh, I, I I think the the principle of no man being above the law is crucial here. And if Donald Trump is is not held accountable, then then he will have successfully obstructed justice and placed himself above the law. Um, and of course, we're, we're not done yet with his pardons and his self-pardons and all of that. But I also think that, I, and I'm, I'm going to talk with Amanda Carpenter about this in a few minutes as well on, on, on today's podcast. We have a double podcast here. Uh, I do think something else changed as well, because it was it was a horrifying scene yesterday. And I don't mean to trivialize this, but it was televised. I mean, yeah. it was everywhere. This was one of those rare moments when all Americans were experiencing roughly the same thing at the same time. Um, I can't remember the last time that the major networks went wall to wall the way they did yesterday. So unlike many of the other things that have happened that did not move the needle, um, this was an image. This was this was it was in people's faces. And what they saw was the attack on American democracy, this attack on the most the most basic iconic symbol of American of the American system of government, the 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 US Capitol. Um, a lot of folks 
uh, who've who've uh, supported Trump or gone along with Trump or enabled Trump, and I'm talking about people out in the electorate, not the elected officials. Um, I think I had to be genuinely shocked by the the breakdown of law and order. Um, watching Trump supporters uh, treat police with such absolute contempt, uh, the thuggery. They did not sign up for for all of that, and and understanding that that this was not just any other riot. This is not just about breaking windows and, and trespassing in offices and trashing offices. This was an attempt to stop and overturn a presidential election. I think that has an, that has an effect. And I think you saw that in the comments of some of the elected officials. I mean, I, I'm going to talk with Amanda yeah. more about this, but I mean, look, I, I, and this will annoy some of the listeners of this, but you know, what Mike Pence um, did yesterday and what Mitch McConnell did yesterday and some of the other senators, uh, this was, uh, let me tell you what it felt like. It almost felt like this was the moment when some of these guys who have been, you know, hiding hiding in their bunkers, sort of crawling out, thinking about the possibility of restoring sanity. And it was kind of disconcerting hearing this kind of the the independent, the, their willingness to be independent. But I, I do think that people... Um, outside of of the hardcore Magaland, had to be shocked by this. I think so. And on that that last point that you just made, I think that's crucial. We're going to spend most of our time in the next few days and weeks, you know, lamenting, denouncing all the terrible things we saw yesterday. I do think it's important that we take time to to really celebrate genuine acts of statesmanship, and and some of that comes from familiar places like Senator Romney's speech. Uh, Congressman Gallagher's statements to the press um, yes. while the riots were happening; those were amazing. But uh, people who, you know, yeah, um, from from Green Bay, and and one of the at, at the same time though, I think we ought to, as you just did, give credit to people who we've been criticizing for so long: uh, Vice President Pence, uh, McConnell, even Kelly Loeffler, even um, having lost her election to say what she said um, after the the the. The insurrection happened. I, I thought was was really credit worthy. Now, in terms of the political dynamic that follows after all of this, I think one of the downsides of yesterday's, the magnitude of yesterday's event is that I think it's going to be very easy for a lot of of I think good people who have supported Trump. I think it's going to be very easy for them to marginalize what happened and say, well, that wasn't us. That was crazy people. Maybe even a little bit of Antifa. Um, that's yeah, not no, us yeah. and to distance themselves. I think it's very important that we confront what happened and how it was totally consistent with the entire arc of, of the Trump presidency, the Trump political exactly. persona. And, and I, this is a moment, I think because Republican senators, especially seem so shaken. I think one of the reasons why I I'm inclined towards seeing more investigations, especially led by Congress is this seems an opportunity for parts of the Republican Party to try to rebuild the Republican Party as a genuinely Republican Party. Uh, I think that that kind of, of reconciliation with reality is necessary. And, and hopefully we saw the first steps towards it yesterday. Although, again, there were some senators who just seem perfectly content with, with stirring up the controversy and then, and then running away. Yeah, well, uh, Ted, Ted, Ted Cruz and uh, and Josh Hawley, you know, coming coming to mind. You know, you use the word marginalized. I I also think that that I, and, and and maybe this is a fantasy. I, mean, I, I will I will I will confess this that there are a lot of Americans um, out there who watch this shocked and and horrified, and you know do not want to be part of all of this. But it's very clear that Trump does want to be part of all of this. I'm mean, this sort of a back a backdoor way of saying that that you know that. You know, we have been saying that Trump is forever, that Trump will continue to be a dominant force in the Republican Party even after he leaves office. But I am really starting to wonder whether or not when he leaves office, especially the way he is leaving completely disgraced the way he is, that he will be increasingly marginalized or will increasingly self-marginalize himself by linking himself tighter and tighter and tighter to the most extreme elements of the fever swamp. And you're already seeing this. The fact that he's hanging around, you know, with, with you know, folks like Lynn Wood and Rudy Giuliani and uh, <laughs> Jenna Ellis. I mean, let's face it. He, he has, his, he's, you know, he's gone all in with the crackpots. And, and I think that you saw yesterday the sort of growing gap between the grownups in the party, including people who have been with him all along, who've been his fluffers and his enablers, and who just are just not willing to go that crazy. They're not willing to go with the full crazy. So if Donald Trump goes full crazy, 
I'm I'm not sure that he's going to be the the power in the party that uh, a lot of people had simply assumed. Let's hope. I, I think JVL gets it right when he says the as he off, as he so often says the the problem isn't always the leaders so much as as voters. And as long as there's a critical mass of people who are willing to vote Republican, uh, but who really just like the Trump stuff. Um, that that's going to have a weird gravitational pull on the rest of the party. And I think the challenge, again, the challenge of statesmanship is resisting that, even when it comes at a cost to your electoral prospects, and trying to bring the party in a better uh, direction. And yeah. we'll see how that plays out. It's I suppose it's two weeks before the inauguration is probably an easy time for, for Lindsey Graham and others to say, okay, I'm out. Or I saw, I think this morning, Mick Mulvaney announced he's leaving oh, the yeah. administration He's been a uh, what an ambassador to Northern Ireland or something, um, and he says he's out. Well, it's you know ten days before the inauguration. I guess that's easy. Um, it'll be interesting to see what happens a year from now as things start moving towards the next presidential campaign, and Donald Trump is pretending like he's going to run for president again. It'll be interesting to see how how the sort of concentric circles of Trumpism um, from Trump outwards through you know very Trumpy congressmen out to sort of Trump-friendly congressman, and then out to the rest, how each of those circles reacts to, yeah, to what exactly. Trump is doing. No, that's a, that's a, I think that's a very good image, these, contra- these concentric circles. We're going to talk about that again a little bit later on the podcast. So th- now that I have you on here, though, uh, Adam, in the few minutes that we have uh, t- sure. together, uh, one of the other big stories yesterday, and, and this, you know, th- this is part of the problem of the Trump era, that there are these huge stories that suddenly um, – you know, are, are over, are overshadowed. Um, I mean, the whole Georgia election, I and mean, we haven't even talked about that, the, the impact that that had on, on the Republicans. Uh, but um, the day after uh, the Republicans lose control of the Senate, Democrats uh, will be able to have, you know, it'll be 50-50 with Kamala Harris breaking the tie vote, which means that the Democrats will control Congress, I mean, control the Senate. Uh, Joe Biden finally got around to picking his attorney general. And I think this is a fascinating choice. I'm, I'm, I have to admit, I am just really, um, I just think it's rather remarkable that, uh, that Joe Biden has picked Judge Merrick Garland, who had been named to the Supreme Court by Barack Obama and famously never got a hearing, never got a vote under Mitch McConnell. Merrick Garland is considered kind of a centrist uh, judge, highly respected. So give me your take on this this choice to pick someone like this as opposed to a more ideological, a more aggressive, more political attorney general. I think it's a really uh, it's a really great choice and and I think it's a it's a reassuring choice. Now in terms of the, you mentioned the timing Biden finally got around to it. I don't think it's a coincidence that he made this pick after Georgia was decided because Garland leaving the DC circuit would open up a seat that Biden might not be able to fill unless he had the Senate. And so perhaps Biden was keeping this one just in his pocket, waiting to see what happened with Georgia. Um, but I think Garland is a, is a, I keep talking about statesmanship. It's a statesmanlike pick. He's not a partisan warrior. Before he he's a well respected judge. Before he was a judge, he was a prosecutor. And I'll get back to that in just a second. But I think it's the kind of choice that shows that Biden is serious about taking down the political pressure around the Justice Department and and wanting to rebuild some of the confidence. Um, that the public has about the Justice Department. But I'll say one last thing about Garland. He has said often that his the most important moment of his career was his work as the federal prosecutor for the Oklahoma City bombing case. Mm-hmm. And what a sort of sick coincidence that, by, that the Garland nomination happens on the same day that we have, I suppose, the event that comes closest to the attack on the Oklahoma City uh, federal building. Uh, the, the the domestic attack on the U.S. Capitol, and so there's a there's a, a perverse um, coincidence there. But I do think it, it's sort of as we were saying before, if the task of the Biden administration is to do a serious, credible look back at what happened, both from the lo- terms of logistics of policing to just the broader you know questions about the administration, Merrick Garland might be the best possible person um, among the the contenders to have that job. And the contrast is so dramatic. I mean, Donald Trump um, wanted uh, the attorney general to be his Roy Cohn. He wanted him to be his personal attorney. Um, he obviously has no respect for the independence of the Justice Department. Um, I, you know, had the department's permanent staff not pushed back against him, I think he would have thoroughly politicized the Department of Justice. And then you have Joe Biden coming in and saying, I'm going to take this in 
as dramatically a different direction as possible by naming Merrick Garland. And there's a couple of things. Number one, the guy, some, this is somebody who is so respected that that when he makes an independent decision involving, as we've been discussing, involving members of the Trump administration, um, I, I, I think it will be received differently than if uh, that if Joe Biden had appointed an, a partisan activist. And this also applies to the handling of any investigation of Hunter Biden. I mean, this is the other thing that, you know, there's got to be a real temptation on the part of somebody. If you know that members of your family are being investigated to find some way to protect yourself. I don't think anybody thinks that Merrick Merrick Garland is going to, you know, pull his punches, uh, even if it involves Hunter Hunter Biden. I mean, so again, this is this is a 180 degree. It feels um, different direction from where we are now. That's a great point. And, and and one last thing about Garland is this is this might be, I suppose, his last job in public service. He's sure. not somebody who's looking for his next job, who thinks that becoming a attorney general might be a springboard to a political campaign or or a Supreme Court seat or something. Garland knows that all that's behind him. And so he can just work on restoring faith in the Justice Department. Now, then again, that's what I had hoped of of Barr um, when he was picked. And I probably am one of the most Barr sympathetic people in the bulwark orbit. But even I have my limits. And even I can say that that that, that was a total failure. And, and Barr often made a bad situation worse, profoundly worse. Um, but I'm hopeful that the dynamic will work out for, for Garland and that he'll just take this job as an end in and of itself and just try to do the best possible job of leading the justice department that he can. I, I was impressed. I was surprised by the choice. I thought it would go to Sally Yates or somebody else. And, and I'm really um, impressed by the choice. Yeah, no, I, uh, it came as uh, I think a, a surprise to a lot, a lot of folks. Adam Wine, thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate it very much. Thanks, Charlie. And our Bulwark podcast coverage of this remarkable week continues. We're joined by the Bulwark's own Amanda Carpenter, our political columnist. Uh, Good morning, the morning after, Amanda. Hey, Charlie. Well, I I was going to ask you just like, you know, what are you angry about this morning? But uh, that would assume that you're you're angry rather than something else. I I actually really want to get into what what happened with the Republican Party uh, last night. And and we we had a very interesting discussion about this uh, on our live stream and I, I throw some of these ideas out here, and, and I'm and I'm not sure, and I'm not sure what I actually think. I'll be I'll be I will be honest about that. I, I think the contrast between the House and the Senate was so dramatic last night. I mean, I still can't get over the fact that after all of that, 138 members of the of the House of Representatives voted to throw out the votes of Pennsylvania. That's 65 percent of the Republican caucus, and the contrast over in the Senate where the the challenges were just i mean they were just hammered down i you know we were playing that sort of over under game and i was thinking 80 85 votes against you know, the trump coup turned out to be 93 and 92 votes respectively so how do you explain the difference just you know start there between the house and the senate well the senate has fewer members and there's less room for people to hide i mean that's just a basic difference between but they the seemed more the shook. They, yeah, they seem shook. But there was more focus on every individual in the Senate, is what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. So when the House guys stand up, I mean, even yesterday, when there was almost a brawl, I, I couldn't quite place the names and the faces of all the people yeah. in the chamber. Connor Lamb was speaking, Democrat from Pennsylvania, who's been on this podcast. Yep, I knew him, but the guy coming at him, I, I don't know, like, yeah. it, took, it took me, if, like, who is that? And who's standing behind him? And like, what are the dynamics here? But yeah. in the Senate, you know every face, you know every name, and I'm not giving Mitch McConnell any points for his long overdue speech yesterday. But when he stands up, people do listen with more attention. When people know exactly who Kelly Loeffler is and have the camera zeroed in on her and you can see her look shaken, I guess is the word. When you see Mitt Romney with fury in his eyes. That was something. You know what that means. Yeah. And so I think that's, it's a matter of public scrutiny. And it's why we have to pay particular attention to every member who engaged in these incitements to the mob. (laughs) 
So I'm I'm not I'm not going to say that Mitch McConnell has has redeemed himself in any way whatsoever. That I'm not I am not going there. However, it was remarkable that after all of this, after four years of this lockstep loyalty, both Mike Pence and Mitch McConnell and even the chief fluffer of the United States Senate, Lindsey Graham, broke with him. And that's one of the things I wanted to sort of get at, because it, it, mm-hmm. it you know, look, I, I understand how, you know, how difficult it's going to be to get out from under Trump's shadow. But at least in the Senate, there was a there was there was some real anger. Um, there, there was some real distancing from Donald Trump. And I, I want to I want to start with this because it, it's sort of easy to get lost because Mike Pence has not had a hair out of place in terms of being a Trumpian sycophant for four years. I mean, this guy, Donald Trump, you know, puts his water on the floor, you know, Pence puts his water on the floor, you know, whatever you ask him, I am just so honored to be with, with, uh, you know, with, you know, to, to serve with, with Donald Trump. Yesterday, he broke rather decisively with him, but, but really this struck me when they came back after the riots, after the insurrection, and, you know, he gavels the gavels Congress back into, into session again. And he gives a little speech, very unusual speech from 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 the podium. This this is what uh, Mike Pence had to say. Today was a dark day in the history of the United States Capitol. But thanks to the swift efforts of U.S. Capitol Police, Mm -hmm. federal, state and local law enforcement, the violence was quelled. The Capitol is secured and the people's work continues. We condemn the violence that took place here in the strongest possible terms. We grieve the loss of life in these hallowed halls, as well as the injuries suffered by those who defended our capital today. And we will always be grateful to the men and women who stayed at their posts to defend this historic place. To those who wreaked havoc in our capital today, you did not win. Violence never wins. Freedom wins. And this is still the people's house. You know what's interesting to me about that, Amanda? Hmm. He didn't mention Donald Trump once. He didn't mention Trump and he he sounded angry and, and his tone was very different than Trump. And we're getting these reports that, you know, I mean, obviously Donald Trump is, he's dead to Donald Trump. He, you know, Trump is, is, you know, feeling uh, completely betrayed, but, um, and I, I sort of had this image as I was listening to Pence, the Trump sitting, you know, in, in the residence going, ah, that, that son of a bitch. He's, he's, you know, he's posturing, you know, about all of this. So that was, that was a moment that we, we need to acknowledge. So you can dump on Pence now, but no, no, no. But, but, but again, understand that this was remarkable. Um, you you didn't know how Pence was going to handle it. He did the right thing earlier in the day after, you know, having been a a sycophant for all these years. But then when he came back, the tone that he set about, about the insurrection is you put that side by side, with Trump's video and his tweets, these guys are headed in different directions, at least on that. Yeah. And I do have to say from the outset, that was a very difficult speech to listen to because Mike Pence stood by his side after Trump said, I can shoot people in the middle of Fifth Avenue, Proud Boys, stand back, stand ready, all the rest. Yep. Right. So I'm, I'm glad you played it because I didn't listen to it the first time. I tuned him out. Couldn't, couldn't take it. That said, why is this happening? And you are right. It is remarkable. There is something happening here. And I think it's directly related to what we saw happen in Georgia, where officials like Governor Kemp, Brad Raffensperger, Gabe Sterling came out and opposed what the president was doing. And I think the key to this has to do with direct responsibility and public scrutiny of their individual actions. Because, like I said earlier, a lot of people have been able to hide out on these questions. But when the, the nexus of legal responsibility falls directly mm-hmm. into their laps, as it did with the Georgia officials, as it did with Mitch McConnell, as it did with Mike Pence yesterday, that's where you see people finally 
finally make the choice and it's out of self-preservation, Charlie. Mm -hmm. It's out of self-preservation. And, you know, I, I guess I'll take it. But God, how I wish it didn't have to come to that. No, I mean, it, and, and the bar was very, very low yesterday. I mean, simply standing up for the Constitution, doing the right thing doesn't make you an American hero. But, you know, that's what I wrote in my newsletter this morning. I mean, it, it did. It just doesn't make up for their years of collaboration or their betrayal of of principles or, or basic decency. But it almost did feel, and I'm not just talking about Pence, but that, that some of these Republicans were actually trying to like crawl out from under the debris of Trumpism and trying to return to a little bit of sanity. Um, I mean, I haven't heard Republicans talk like this in, in a while. Liz Cheney, who's the number three uh, member of the uh, House uh, leadership, uh, she tweeted out, we just had a violent mob assault, uh, assault the Capitol in an attempt to prevent those from carrying out our constitutional duty. There's no question that the president formed the mob, the president incited the mob, the president addressed the mob, he lit the flame. You know, I mean, even a few weeks ago, you wouldn't have expected that kind of direct attack on the president, um, that kind of characterization from a high-ranking Republican. Now, it is Liz Cheney, and she's broken in the past. And, of course, the bad news is that Kevin McCarthy and Steve Scalise, you know, voted to, uh, you know, w went along with the Trump conspiracy bullshit. But that, that was that was rather forceful of Liz Cheney. Yeah, it, it's it, that was good to see. I mean, it's just weird. It's the lowest bar, but yet it, it's good to see it, and it is reassuring. But here's where I think the key is. Once we lay down these markers, we have to mutually agree with the people who openly admit this was a violent assault egged on by the president, that there's no going back, right? Like, there's no going back to this. The officials who were responsible for enabling this can't be in positions of power again. Mm -hmm. Right. They just you we we have to get there. It's not today, it's not tomorrow. But these people have proven themselves uniquely unfit for office. Okay, so um um Amanda, um while we're talking, uh, the former attorney general Bill Barr, certainly in the top five of Trump enablers and loyalists, tweeted out something I think a little bit remarkable. You 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 have the tweet in front of you because I don't have it. Um yes, I do. So this just came through. Former Attorney General Bill Barr says Donald Trump's conduct as a violent mob of supporters uh, who stormed the U.S. Capitol was, quote, a betrayal of his office and supporters. Whoa. In a statement to the AP, Barr said that, quote, orchestrating a mob to pressure Congress is inexcusable, end quote. Uh, okay, I did not have that on my card, Bill Barr issuing that statement. Um, did, did you see what James Mattis said, the former uh, Secretary of Defense, who's been really, really reluctant to criticize Trump? He was also very uh, forceful. This is what Mattis said. His use of the presidency to destroy trust in our election and to poison our respect for fellow citizens has been enabled by pseudo-political leaders whose names will live in infamy as profiles in cowardice. I actually had to like Google this to make sure this was actually him because it seems so strong. Our constitution and our republic will overcome this stain and we the people will come together again in our never-ending effort to form a more perfect union while Mr. Trump will deservedly be left a man without a country. Hmm. Amanda, what 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 is happening? What's happening? Well, these are good things. <laughs> these are good things. Um, I guess I want to know what does it mean? What does it mean when Bill Barr says Donald Trump betrayed his office and orchestrated a mob? What does that mean functionally? Does that mean we will never support him again? Does it mean we are ready to think about impeachment, 25th Amendment? I mean, because once, once his attorney general says he participated in a betrayal of his office, I, I, I think that participates yeah. some action. No, this is uh, I, I think basically, though, this 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 is sealing uh, Donald Trump's legacy. And I, I understand mm -hmm. that Trump is forever and he will be always around. But this could not be ending any worse for Donald Trump. And I think that what, what you're seeing is that, you know, I mean, one obviously easy version is all the rats are jumping from the sinking ship. But they're acknowledging that this thing is a disaster. They want to distance themselves. Mick Mulvaney 
resigns, yeah. um, saying bizarrely saying, well, this Donald Trump is different than he was eight months ago, which is, huh. of course, again, total bullshit because, come on, Mick, uh, he's, he's no different than he was eight months ago, eight years ago. I mean, he is exactly who he says he was. So speaking of, of former fluffers. I, again, you know how I feel about that word. Okay. <laughs> I said former. Um, so uh, Lindsey Graham, Lindsey Graham, um, he he basically kind of broke up with Donald, like you know, via text message yesterday. Let's play. Let's play Lindsey. Uh, Trump and I, have, we've had a hell of a journey. I hate it being this way. Oh my God, I hate it. From my point of view, he's been a consequential president. But today, first thing you'll see. All I can say is uh, count me out. Enough is enough. I've tried to be helpful. But when the Wisconsin Supreme Court ruled four to three that they didn't violate the, Supreme, uh, the Constitution of Wisconsin, I agree with the three, but I accept the four. If Al Gore can accept five, four, he's not president. I can accept Wisconsin four to three. Pennsylvania. It went to the Second Circuit. So much for all the judges being in Trump's pocket. They said, no, you're wrong. I accept the Pennsylvania Second Circuit that Trump's lawsuit wasn't, wasn't right. Georgia, they said the Secretary of State took the law in his own hands. He changed the election laws unlawfully. A federal judge said, no, I accept the federal judge even though I don't agree with it. Fraud. They said there's 66,000 people in Georgia under 18 voted. How many people believe that? I asked, give me 10. And I had one. They said 8,000 felons in prison in Arizona voted. Give me 10. I hadn't gotten one. Does that say there's, there's problems in every election? I don't buy this. Enough's enough. We got to end it. Uh, breaking up is hard to do. So, you know, two, two questions, Amanda. Was, was Lindsay a little bit overserved there? You know, I mean, you know what I'm saying? What, what, was Lindsay breaking up with Trump or just looking for some new friends? Well, that's what's interesting because, you know, you, you, that's, you remember the Lindsey Graham from 2015, 2016, he was the least likely guy ever to become the Trump sycophant, right? Totally. He the, he's well, except obviously he wasn't, but he's always looking for somebody, right? He's looking for, you know, what is it? The pilot fish that's, you know, just yep. need, 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 needs another big fish. And so it was John McCain for a while. And then John McCain dies. And it felt like within days, the pilot fish went on, you know, went on and found, a, found another big fish. And now Donald Trump, I don't know. I don't think they're going to be golfing. I don't no. think they'll be fluffing anymore. <laughs> I don't know. I can't. Uh, on another note, please, okay. Adam Kinzinger, who was on your podcast yeah. last week, representative from Illinois, just posted a video calling for the 25th Amendment to be invoked. This is not likely to happen. I mean, I actually yeah. was tweeting about this in my incandescent rage yesterday that, uh, look, this is it. This is it. You know, this man needs to be impeached, removed. Uh, if, if, if Congress won't do it, which they're not going to do it, then they need to invoke the 25th um, Amendment. Um, I, I don't, that's, that's also not going to happen, but I, you know, that we've reached the point where Donald Trump's unfitness is so manifest, where the, his danger to the Republic is so clear that when you even have Bill Barr, uh, willing to call him out, we, we have reached a new chapter in all of this. So, you know, we were asked the question last night, does this change anything? Um, I don't see how it doesn't change some things, it was, we, especially, you know, some of this, this movement we've seen over the last 24 hours, but what do you what does this do for the whole Trump 2024? Remember, you know, a few weeks ago, we were all sort of thinking that, OK, eventually he will find a way to, you know, keep complaining about this. But maybe even on January 20th, he's announcing that he's going to run and then he will be the odds on favor to be the Republican nominee. He's not acting like a guy that is running again, does he? I mean, he this this is not enhancing his ability to do that if if. And again, maybe it's a mistake to attribute any coherent thought to him. But so what, what is the status of Trump 2024 right now? I mean, I, I have. Did you see Donald Trump Jr. at the yep. Stop the Steel rally or whatever? That was the morning where he was. I, I don't watch all of him, but I saw some of the clips where he was standing up and saying, this is not 
the Republican Party. This is Trump's Republican Party now. And just essentially threatening people. But that that kind of sums it up. Like, they think it belongs to them, right? They yeah. think, and even Donald Trump's statement last night, where he's saying the fight will continue, essentially I'll be back. They think this thing belongs to them. Mm-hmm. And unless people make it really clear that it's not theirs anymore, that they er, that he is being this thing, this plaything they call politics is being taken away from them. I, I don't know. He's going to have control over it because he, they're not going to go away. We've been saying this for months, years. This power has to be taken yeah. from them. And that is not going to be easy because there's a base of support there. And there's people like Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley who want to play to that base of support, keep feeding them lies to keep them happy, to keep them outraged, to keep them showing up at rallies. And there's a whole propaganda machine to assist them in doing that. I mean, Fox News was running cover for this last night. Fox News, the law and order, back Mm -hmm. the blue. You know, we're going to support Donald Trump 10 years for anybody that spray paints a federal building. And they're saying, oh, this wasn't that big a deal. Capitol Police fell down on the job. It was Antifa. They're running cover for this thing. Yeah. So none of this is going to happen naturally. Like, you have to fight for this thing. You have to fight to take the power away from these people. And I'm not saying go out into the streets. Just we have laws and rules and order. And as conservatives, we will work through that. But this is a contest of ideas. And I, I think... Their ideals showed they failed yesterday in spectacular fashion, but we have to make that argument and win it because it will not make itself. No, I agree. I agree. Just don't assume that people are going to come to the right conclusions on all of these things. This is the importance of of being able to take a stand. But, you know, you, you mentioned Don Jr. And it was also was uh, Eric was was out there yesterday uh, saying, you know, if you vote against, uh, you know, if you don't vote for this, uh, this, this coup, uh, your political career is over. We're coming for you. Um, and the belief is that that, uh, you know, that a Donald Trump endorsement against you in a primary. And he's been doing this for the last you know several weeks, you know, threatening various uh, U.S. senators, Republican U.S. senators with primary challenges. And last night, this was the other thing that happened. I mean, obviously, none of them seemed particularly worried about that. None of the people that he targeted actually went along and voted with him. I mean, when you have a vote of 93 to 6, 92 to 7, um, obviously that threat is not taken as seriously as Donald Trump thought. Donald Trump thought he was pointing a loaded gun at these guys, and they went, hey, we're going to call your bluff on this. And and that was that was, that was significant. Yeah, but this is on. I mean, yes, yes. I'm not praising it's anyone. On, I'm, I'm just yeah. trying to figure out what's happening here. You know? Yeah. Okay. Let's let's go here because this is what it makes me think of. So I work for Ted Cruz, who part of the Sedition Six. I also work with Chip Roy, who is his chief of staff, who was leading the sort of fight against this madness in the House, who forced a vote on the question of whether um, congressional members who won elections in the states Trump lost should be seated or not you know, putting that question, it passed uh, unanimously, um, right, that they mm-hmm. all should be seeing proving, proving the lie that these elections were stolen or some funny business went on. Right. And so, you know, Chip took a very righteous, brave stand there, did good work. He didn't just like say the words and go away. He made speeches. He forced votes. Excellent. Clever. Yeah. Excellent. And then on the other hand, where he can, you know, go along with Trump on the open up America sort of anti-mask stuff, he's there too. Without, you know, so on on fundamental questions of whether the coronavirus is a hoax and all this, you know, there's other stuff going on. I'm happy people can get the big, big, big questions right, but those aren't the only ones. No, you're, you're, you're right. Um, I also have to ask you about, um, in the time we have left, uh, about Georgia, because you, you were an early adopter of the Kelly Leffler being one of the most deplorable human beings ever to serve in the United States Senate uh, caucus, weren't you? Oh, so, so sweet uh, of you to remember. I do remember that. So obviously you were watching that very carefully. And now I've, I've admitted publicly, so I'll say it again. Um, I, I was really surprised that uh, the Democrats won. I, I simply thought that it was the conventional wisdom uh, that Republicans tend to do better in these uh, in these runoff elections. I thought it was was true. Um, 
I know that, that the, the Democrats had, you know, you know, flawed candidates, um, you know, so give me give me your take on on the significance of Georgia and the, the defeat of of Purdue and, and Leffler. Is that this is an extra this is a, this is an extraordinary story that shouldn't get lost. The fact that Georgia, I mean, you know, after after one term of Donald Trump, state of Georgia has two Democratic senators. The state of Arizona has two Democratic senators. This this is a consequential development. Yeah. Well, the, the big thing going on yesterday morning before the riots broke out was the blame game happening in Washington over who is at fault for losing these seats, right? You know, Donald Trump lost the state of Georgia. And then, you know, a lot of the people aligned with Mitch McConnell were essentially just trying to blame Trump, which Trump has a lot to do with that. I have no doubt. Both of them, you know, essentially duct taped themselves to Trump and ran, especially Loeffler, as a 100% Trump loyalist. But then look at all the people who were backing her in doing exactly that. You know, Mitch McConnell did the right thing yesterday, but his NRSC spent, I I can't even remember how much money trying to protect her seat. I mean, all the money that was, you know, and she self-funded, I think $23 million. Her husband donated like millions of dollars to her super PACs. And the entire Senate establishment was aligned behind this woman who styled herself as Attila the Hun, who campaigned with QAnon for Congress, Marjorie Taylor Greene, and, you know, took selfies with the militia, right? That is who, that's what she was doing. And then they want to say, oh, Donald Trump is the reason you lost. All that money went to the race and that's the best advice they could give her. I mean, put aside the fact she's a complete automaton who apparently doesn't have an original thought in her mind and will just do whatever people tell her. But the, everyone sort of agreed this was the right strategy when it clearly was abhorrent. Well, it was. And also she, she and Purdue are running on this, uh, as, as Tim Miller has pointed out, uh, on, on a pro-coup platform. I mean, it was yeah. it was and I think he also wrote a piece about her you know, incredible nihilism that she clearly didn't believe anything except loyalty to Donald Trump. So, you know, she's running on the the defense bill, well, hold the, on. the defense bill. But she's kind of another Lindsey Graham pilot fish without the charisma, right? She got appointed by Governor Kemp. She got on the political scene because she donated a ton of money to Mitt Romney. She just does whatever people tell her. I mean, wherever I can go for power, you know, I'm going to take that ride. That's how I see her. An empty, craven, power-hungry monster with a blonde wig. So you you two are not close. Well, I'd have to meet her to be close to her. So no, no. She, she I was, will never meet her. No, this is a significant upgrade in in the United States Senate. But you know, you look at this race, and and I keep asking myself, so why did the Republicans lose? And and there's a lot of easy explanations, including um, and, and the easy explanations because they're true. Uh, that the Donald Trump uh, sabotaged uh, sabotaged it. Uh, he 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 clearly demoralized the Republican base. He you know spent half of his time. Um, when he was talking about Georgia, attacking other Republicans in Georgia, uh, aligning himself with people who were basically saying there's no reason to vote because it's all rigged, right? Um, Leffler and Purdue ran horrible campaigns, uh, but we've we've discussed here. But I, I can't, you know, get away from the fact that you look at what actually happened in the end, and this the 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 African American turnout. And I don't give it, give all the credit to Stacey Abrams, but she deserves a lot. And I've been critical of her in the past. I'm not a Stacey Abrams, you know, um, you know, band leader here. But, you know, in the end, it was this just massive, extraordinary backlash turnout uh, in the African-American community that really did them in. And they also did something in Georgia that they didn't that Democrats did not do in South Carolina during the pandemic because they didn't go door to door. And in retrospect, yeah. I think the lack of the ground game in some of these other states, the because of the pandemic, we're trying to do the right thing, figuring that you could run an air campaign without going door to door. That was a failure in these other states. So they learned from it in Georgia. And I, I you know, this is this is now the new reality that uh, that if you can get some of these, if, if you if you can get Democrats to turn out in those kinds of numbers, then you can flip an awful lot of states. Yeah, and it's it's unfair of me to characterize this as a Republican loss. This is a Democratic win, no doubt. 
it's I both. Mean, yeah. I mean, yeah. Well, I guess, you know, when I was working all on true. the campaign side, there was this belief essentially that if you, if you had a Republican in a very red district, you should be able to get the hardest core Republican conservative that you want, because as soon as the primary is over, everyone's going to vote Republican no matter what. So you should go as far to the right as humanly possible. You know, I never mm-hmm. could have predicted that would turn out with Attila the Hun wannabes, but that's essentially what happened. I mean, that arrogance that you can go as far to the right as you want, who cares about any Democrat, minority, woman you might be representing, because it doesn't matter. You don't have to count their feelings. You don't have to represent them. They are discounted. I mean, that's how you end up with somebody like Marjorie Taylor Greene. That, that's that's the logical end of these gerrymandered districts and this mentality that you you only have to represent the highly motivated Republican primary voters, outrage them and turn them out and call it good. I mean, that's essentially the Trump campaign strategy. Um, it, it's not working. And I'm glad it's not working. But it's, it's because of the Democratic turnout and because they freaking they worked it in Georgia. Well, you mentioned Marjorie Taylor Greene, and you know, I, I'm hoping that the media uh, slash uh, political world will make Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Bobbitt and that guy that beat Denver Riggleman and Madison Cawthorn. I, I, I will hope that they make them the face of the Republican Party in the way that the squad became the face of the Democratic Party. I mean, if if AOC is the representative of what the Democratic Party stands for and that squad, why not have the same sort of focus on, you know, the four or five or six or seven or whatever um you know, the, the QAnon caucus, which, by the way, the QAnon caucus is uh, is uh, is rather impressive in its side, in its size. Yeah, I mean, I, I that would require a concerted effort by Democratic media savvy figures to label them um, and campaign against them relentlessly on a level that Fox News does to AOC every day which I, I just don't think that's something the Democrats are comfortable with. That certainly won't happen from the likes of Joe Biden, and it probably shouldn't. Um, I am not disagreeing with you at all, um, but I, I just I don't know who yeah. who would do that because the squad and the demonization of AOC is, is a media creation. It is totally a media creation, and I'm, I'm, I'm guessing that it's not going to happen, but I just, it's a, yeah. it's a thought <laughs> that I have. Okay, so Amanda Carpenter... What else are you thinking about these days? What are you watching? What are, you what am I watching? Um, I'd like to watch a comedy on Netflix again and not stay up all night seeing it. Oh, we're I saw, to. wait, wait, you had a tweet. And see, I got up, I have to admit, because I, I do my newsletter and, and I and I was kind of worried about it because there's just so much to absorb. So I was up at like five in the morning and I saw a tweet from you and it was like 26 minutes before that saying that maybe you should make yourself a cup of coffee since you weren't Did you actually get to bed last night? Well, I was slated for overnight coverage from 3 to 5 a.m. with CNN. So I did sort of close my eyes and I had the news on my Sirius XM app on my phone. And I was kind of in and out of it from like 1130 to 1. So, yeah, then I was pretty much up. But I did fall back asleep. My husband got the kids up and breakfast and doing their school stuff. And I I did sleep actually from 6 to 9. So, yeah, I'm okay. Okay, so... (laughs) See, this is you're you're a much better person than I am because if I ever get a request for, hey, would you be available to do our overnight coverage from three to five? I would say, no, <laughs> I'm sorry, yeah. no, I have other plans. I, well, I'm, I'm sorry, I have previous engagements to be completely asleep. Are you nuts? Well, it was cool because I did get to see the second, you know, that Joe Biden reached two seventy. Um, as you it saw happened. that, yeah, yeah. So oh. I I was happy I stayed up. That was important. And it did feel good to see Congress come back the same day. Um, that, that was important. It wasn't assuredly okay. going to happen. You know, it, it, while it's all happening, I was like, man, just go to the alternate location. Get this done. Get it done. Yeah. Um, but it was so meaningful. It was kind of right dramatic. What was it about like 3, 3.30 or so in the morning that they, they gaveled Joe oh, Biden? Is- let me check because yeah. I posted something the second. Hmm. Maybe 3.33. I don't know. 
Um, it, it did occur to me, and of course I went to bed much before you did, um, though that, that, you know, the events of yesterday, because of the way they played out with the riot and then coming back and they made it very clear that they were going to come back. And this was a moment of defiance. And, you know, you heard that from Pence, you heard it from Pelosi, you heard it from uh, Chuck Schumer, you, you heard it from, from Mitch McConnell, you know, that they were, they were going to do this, that what it did in, in retrospect is it made Joe Biden's victory. Joe Biden is elected again, wins again in a more dramatic fashion than, than he ever could have done if it weren't for Donald Trump. So Donald Trump has managed to stage, you know, stage manage this in such a way that he loses over and over and over again and loses in a more dramatic way each time. Yeah. And I just checked the timestamp. It was 3.32 a.m., the moment that Vermont put him over 270 electoral votes. Hmm. So that's a long day. Yeah, that's a that is a very very long day, and I'm guessing you may have a nap in your future. So, Amanda Carpenter, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. I appreciate it very much. Thank you, and thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow, and we will do this all over again.